Chapter 9, Part 1 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. Paris in Prison by Giacomo Casanova. Translated by Arthur Machen. Episode 6, Chapter 9, Part 1. The beautiful O'Morphy, the deceitful painter. I practice Kabbalism for the Duchess of Chartres. I leave Paris, my stay in Dresden, and my departure from that city. I went to St. Lawrence's Fair with my friend Patou, who, taking it into his head to sup with a Flemish actress known by the name of Morphy, invited me to go with him. I felt no inclination for the girl, but what can we refuse to a friend? I did as he wished. After we had supped with the actress, Patou fancied a night devoted to a more agreeable occupation, and as I did not want to leave him, I asked for a sofa on which I could sleep quietly during the night. Morphy had a sister, a slovenly girl of thirteen, who told me that if I would give her a crown she would abandon her bed to me. I agreed to her proposal, and she took me to a small closet where I found a straw palais on four boards of wood. You call this a bed, my child? I have no other, sir. Then I do not want it, and you shall not have the crown. Do you intend undressing yourself? Of course. What an idea! There are no sheets. Do you sleep with your clothes on? Oh, no. Well, then, go to bed as usual, and you shall have the crown. Why? I want to see you undressed. But you won't do anything to me? Not the slightest thing. She undressed and laid herself on her miserable straw bed, and covered herself with an old curtain. In that state, the impression made by her dirty tatters disappeared, and I saw only a perfect beauty. But I wanted to see her entirely. I tried to satisfy my wishes. She opposed some resistance, but a double crown of six francs made her obedient, and finding that her only fault was a complete absence of cleanliness, I began to wash her with my own hands. You will allow me, dear reader, to suppose that you possess a simple and natural knowledge, namely that admiration under such circumstances is inseparable from another kind of approbation. Luckily I found the young Morphy disposed to let me do all I pleased, except the only thing for which I did not care. She told me candidly that she would not allow me to do that one thing, because in her sister's estimation it was worth twenty-five louis. I answered that we would bargain on that capital point another time, but we would not touch it for the present. Satisfied with what I said, all the rest was at my disposal, and I found in her a talent which had obtained great perfection, in spite of her precocity. The young Helene faithfully handed to her sister the six francs I had given her, and she told her the way in which she had earned them. Before I left the house she told me, as she was in want of money, she felt disposed to make some abatement on the price of twenty-five louis. I answered with a laugh that I would see her about it the next day. I related the whole affair to Patou, who accused me of exaggeration, and, wishing to prove to him that I was a real connoisseur of female beauty, I insisted upon his seeing Helen as I had seen her. He agreed with me that the chisel of Praxiteles had never carved anything more perfect. As white as a lily, Helene possessed all the beauties which nature and the art of the painter could possibly combine. 
the loveliness of her features was so heavenly that it carried to the soul an indefinable sentiment of ecstasy, a delightful calm. She was fair, but her beautiful blue eyes equaled the finest black eyes in brilliance. I went to see her the next evening, and, not agreeing about the price, I made a bargain with her sister to give her twelve francs every time I paid her a visit, and it was agreed that we would occupy her room until I should make up my mind to pay six hundred francs. It was regular usury, but the Morphy came from a Greek race and was above prejudices. I had no idea of giving such a large sum, because I felt no wish to obtain what it would have procured me. What I obtained was all I cared for. The elder sister thought I was duped, for in two months I had paid three hundred francs without having done anything, and she attributed my reserve to avarice. Avarice, indeed! I took a fancy to possess a painting of that beautiful body, and a German artist painted it for me, splendidly, for six louis. The position in which he painted it was delightful. She was lying on her stomach, her arms and her bosom leaning on a pillow, and holding her head sideways as if she were partly on the back. The clever and tasteful artist had painted her nether parts with so much skill and truth that no one would have wished for anything more beautiful. I was delighted with that portrait. It was a speaking lightness, and I wrote unto it, O oh, Morphy, not a Homeric word, but a Greek one after all, and meaning beautiful. But who can anticipate the wonderful and secret decrees of destiny? My friend Patou wished to have a copy of that portrait. One cannot refuse such a slight service to a friend, and I gave an order for it to the same painter. But the artist, having been summoned to Versailles, showed that delightful painting with several others, and Monsieur de Saint-Quentin found it so beautiful that he lost no time showing it to the king. His most Christian majesty, a great connoisseur in that line, wished to ascertain with his own eyes if the artist had made a faithful copy, and in case the original should prove as beautiful as the copy, the son of Saint-Louis knew very well what to do with it. Monsieur de Saint-Quentin, the king's trusty friend, had the charge of that important affair. It was his province. He inquired from the painter whether the original could be brought to Versailles, not supposing that there would be any difficulty, a promise to attend to it. He therefore called on me to communicate the proposal. I thought it was delightful, and I immediately told the sister, who jumped for joy. She set to work cleaning, washing, and clothing the young beauty. In two or three days after, we went to Versailles with the painter to see what could be done. Monsieur de Saint-Quentin's valet, having received his instructions from his master, took the two females to a pavilion in the park, and the painter went to the hotel to await the result of his negotiation. Half an hour afterwards, the king entered the pavilion alone, asked the young O'Morphy if she was a Greek woman, took the portrait out of his pocket, and, after a careful examination, exclaimed, I have never seen a better likeness. His majesty then sat down, took the young girl on his knees, bestowed a few caresses on her, and having ascertained with his royal hand that the fruit had not yet been plucked, gave her a kiss. Lord Morphy was looking attentively at her master, and smiled. "'What are you laughing at?' said the king. "'I laugh because you and a crown of six francs are as like as two peas.' That naivete made the king laugh heartily, and he asked her whether she would like to remain in Versailles. "'That depends on my sister,' answered the child. But the sister hastened to tell the king that she could not aspire to a greater honor. The king locked them up again in the pavilion and went away. 
but in less than a quarter of an hour San Quentin came to fetch them, placed the young girl in an apartment under the care of a female attendant, and with a sister he went to meet at the hotel, the German artist to whom he gave fifty louis for the portrait, and nothing to Morphy. He only took her address, promising her that she would soon hear from him. The next day she received one thousand louis. The worthy German gave me twenty-five louis for my portrait, with a promise to make a careful copy of the one I had given to Patou, and he offered to paint for me, gratuitously, the likeness of every girl of whom I might wish to keep a portrait. I enjoyed heartily the pleasure of the good fleeting, when she found herself in the possession of a thousand gold pieces which she had received. Seeing herself rich, and considering me as the author of her fortune, she did not know how to show me her gratitude. The young and lovely O'Morphy, for the king always called her by that name, pleased the sovereign by her simplicity and her pretty ways, even more than by her rare beauty, the most perfect, the most regular I recollect to have ever seen. He placed her in one of the apartments of his Parc du Cerf, the voluptuous monarch's harem, in which no one could get admittance except the ladies presented at court. At the end of one year she gave birth to a son, who, like so many others, God knows where, for as long as Queen Mary lived, no one ever knew what became of the natural children of Louis the Fifteenth. O Morphy fell into disgrace at the end of three years, but the king, as he sent her away, ordered her to receive a sum of four hundred thousand francs, which she brought as a dowry to an officer from Brittany. In 1783, happening to be in Fontainebleau, I made the acquaintance of a charming young woman of twenty-five, the offspring of that marriage and the living portrait of his mother, of the history of whom he had not the slightest knowledge, and I thought it my duty not to enlighten him. I wrote my name on his tablets, and begged him to present my compliments to his mother. The wicked trick of Madame de Valentinois, sister-in-law of the Prince of Monaco, was the cause of O'Morphy's disgrace. That lady, who was well known in Paris, told her one day, if she wished to make the king very merry, she had only to ask him how he treated his old wife. Too simple to guess the snare thus laid out for her, old Morphy actually asked that impertinent question. But Louis the Fifteenth gave her a look of fury, and exclaimed, Miserable wretch, who taught you to address me that question? The poor old Morphy, almost dead with fright, threw herself on her knees and confessed the truth. The king left her, and would never see her again. The Countess de Valentinois was exiled for two years from the court of Louis the Fifteenth, who knew how wrongly he was behaving towards his wife as a husband, would not deserve any reproach at her hands as a king, and woe to anyone who forgot the respect due to the queen. The French are undoubtedly the most witty people in Europe, and perhaps in the whole world, but Paris is, all the same, the city for impostors and quacks to make a fortune. When their knavery is found out, people turn it into a joke and laugh, but in the midst of the merriment another mountebank makes his appearance, and does something more wonderful than those who preceded him, and he makes his fortune, whilst the scoffing of the people is in abeyance. It is the unquestionable effect of the power which fashion gives over that amiable, clever, and lively nation. If anything is astonishing, no matter how extravagant it may be, the crowd is surely to welcome it greedily for any one would be afraid of having been taken for a fool if he should exclaim, It is impossible! Physicians are perhaps the only men in France who know that an infinite gulf yawns before the will and the deed, whilst in Italy it is an axiom known to everybody. 
but I do not mean to say that the Italians are superior to the French. A certain painter met with great success for some time by announcing a thing which was an impossibility, namely, by pretending that he could take a portrait of a person without seeing the individual, and only from the description given. But he wanted the description to be thoroughly accurate. The result of it was that the portrait did greater honor to the person who gave the description than to the painter himself, but at the same time the informer found himself under the obligation of finding the likeness very good. Otherwise the artist alleged the most legitimate excuse, and said that if the likeness was not perfect, the fault was to be ascribed to the person who had given an imperfect description. One evening I was taking supper at Sylvia's when one of the guests spoke of that wonderful new artist without laughing, and with every appearance of believing the whole affair. That painter, added he, has already painted more than one hundred portraits, and they are all perfect likenesses. Everybody was of the same opinion. It was splendid. I was the only one who, laughing heartily, took the liberty of saying, it was absurd and impossible. The gentleman who had brought the wonderful news, feeling angry, proposed a wager of one hundred louis. I laughed all the more because his offer could not be accepted, unless I exposed myself to being made a dupe. But the portraits are all admirable likenesses. I do not believe it, or if they are, they must be cheating somewhere. But the gentleman, being bent upon convincing Sylvia and me, for she had taken my part, proposed to make us dine with the artist, and we accepted. The next day we called upon the painter, where we saw a quantity of portraits, all of whom the artist claimed to be speaking likenesses. As we did not know the persons whom they represented, we could not deny his claim. Sir, said Sylvia to the artist, could you paint the likeness of my daughter without seeing her? Yes, madam, if you are certain of giving me an exact description of the expression of her features. We exchanged a glance, and no more was said about it. The painter told us that supper was his favorite meal, and that he would be delighted if we would often give him the pleasure of our company. Like all quacks, he possessed an immense quantity of letters and testimonials from Bordeaux, Toulouse, Lyon, Rouen, etc., which paid the highest compliments to the perfection of his portraits, or gave descriptions for new pictures ordered from him. His portraits, by the way, had to be paid in advance. Two or three days afterwards, I met his pretty niece, who obligingly upbraided me for not having yet availed myself of her uncle's invitation to supper. The niece was a dainty morsel worthy of a king, and, her reproaches being very flattering to my vanity, I promised I would come the next day. In less than a week, it turned out a serious engagement. I fell in love with the interesting niece, who, being full of wit and well disposed to enjoy herself, had no love for me, and granted me no favor. I hoped, and feeling that I was caught, I felt it was the only thing I could do. One day, that I was alone in my room, drinking my coffee and thinking of her, the door was suddenly opened without anybody being announced, and a young man came in. I did not recollect him, but without giving me time to ask any questions, he said to me, Sir, I have had the honor of meeting you at the supper-table of Monsieur Sampson, the painter. Ah, yes, I beg you to excuse me, sir. I did not at first recollect you. It is natural, for your eyes are always on Mademoiselle Sampson. Very likely, but you must admit that she is a charming creature. I have no difficulty whatever in agreeing with you. To my misery, I know it but too well. You are in love with her? 
Alas, yes, and I say again to my misery. To your misery? But why? Do you not gain her love? That is the very thing I have been striving for since last year, and I was beginning to have some hope when your arrival has reduced me to despair. I have reduced you to despair? Yes, sir. I am very sorry, but I cannot help it. You could easily help it, and, if you would allow me, I could suggest to you the way in which you could greatly oblige me. Speak candidly. You might never put your foot in the house again. That is a rather singular proposal, but I agree that it is truly the only thing I can do if I have a real wish to oblige you. Do you think, however, that, in that case, you would succeed in gaining her affection? Then it will be my business to succeed. Do not go there again, and I will take care of the rest. I might render you that very great service, but you must confess that you must have a singular opinion of me to suppose that I am a man to do such a thing. Yes, sir, I admit that it may appear singular, but I take you for a man of great sense and sound intellect, and after having considered the subject deeply, I have thought that you would put yourself in my place, that you would not wish to make me miserable, or to expose your own life for a young girl who can have inspired you with but a passing fancy, whilst my only wish is to secure the happiness or the misery of my life, whichever it may prove, by uniting her existence with mine. But suppose that I should intend, like you, to ask her in marriage. Then we should both be worthy of pity, and one of us would have ceased to exist before the other obtained her, for, as long as I shall live, Mademoiselle Sampson shall not be the wife of another. This young man, well made, pale, grave, as cold as a piece of marble, madly in love, who, in his reason mixed with utter despair, came to speak to me in such a manner, with the most surprising calm, made me pause and consider. Undoubtedly I was not afraid, but although in love with Mademoiselle Sampson, I did not feel my passion sufficiently strong to cut the throat of a man for the sake of her beautiful eyes, or to lose my own life to defend my budding affection. Without answering the young man, I began to pace up and down my room, and for a quarter of an hour I weighed the following question, which I put to myself. Which decision will appear more manly in the eyes of my rival, and will win my own esteem to the deeper degree, namely, to accept coolly his offer to cut one another's throats, or to allay his anxiety by withdrawing from the field with dignity. Pride whispered, Fight! Reason said, Compel thy rival to acknowledge thee a wiser man than he is. What would you think of me, sir, I said to him with an air of decision, if I consented to give up my visits to Mademoiselle Sampson? I would think that you had pity on a miserable man, and I say that in that case you will ever find me ready to shed the last drop of my blood to prove my deep gratitude. Who are you? My name is Garnier. I am the only son of Monsieur Garnier, wine merchant from the Rue des Seine. Well, Monsieur Garnier, I will never again call on Mademoiselle Sampson. Let us be friends. Until death. Farewell, sir. Adieu. Be happy. Patou came in five minutes after Garnier had left me. I related the adventure to him, and he thought I was a hero. I would have acted as you have done, he observed, but I would not have acted like Garnier. It was about that time that Count de Melfort, colonel of the Orléans Regiment, entreated me through Camille, 
Coraline's sister, to answer two questions by means of my Kabbalism. I gave two answers very vague, yet meaning a great deal. I put them under a sealed envelope and gave them to Camille, who asked me the next day to accompany her to a place which she said she could not name to me. I followed her. She took me to the Palais Royal, and then, through a narrow staircase, to the apartments of the Duchess of Chartres. I waited about a quarter of an hour, at the end of which time the Duchess came in, and loaded Camille with caresses for having brought me. Then, addressing herself to me, she told me, with dignity, yet very graciously, the difficulty she experienced in understanding the answers I had sent, and which she was holding in her hand. At first I expressed some perplexity at the questions having emanated from Her Royal Highness, and I told her afterwards that I understood Kabbalism, but that I could not interpret the meaning of the answers obtained through it, and that Her Highness must ask new questions likely to render the answers easier to be understood. She wrote down all she could not make out, and all she wanted to know. Madam, you must be kind enough to divide the questions, for the Kabbalistic oracle never answers two questions at the same time. Well, then, prepare the questions yourself. Your Highness will excuse me, but every word must be written with your own hand. Recollect, madam, that you will address yourself to a superior intelligence, knowing all your secrets. She began to write, and asked seven or eight questions. She read them over carefully, and said with a face beaming with noble confidence, Sir, I wish to be certain that no one shall ever know what I have just written. Your Highness may rely on my honor. I read attentively, and saw that her wish for secrecy was reasonable, and that if I put the questions in my pocket, I should run the risk of losing them and implicating myself. I will only require three hours to complete my task, I said to the Duchess, and I wish your Highness to feel no anxiety. If you have any other engagement, you can leave me here alone, provided I am not disturbed by anybody. When it is completed, I will put it all in a sealed envelope. I only want your Highness to tell me to whom I must deliver the parcel. Either to me or to Madame de Polignac, if you know her. Yes, madam, I have the honor to know her. The Duchess handed me a small tinder-box to enable me to light a wax candle, and she went away with Camille. I remained alone, locked up in the room, and at the end of three hours, just as I had completed my task, Madame de Polignac came for the parcel, and I left the palace. The Duchess de Chartres, daughter of the Prince of Conti, was twenty-six years of age. She was endowed with that particular sort of wit which renders a woman adorable. She was lively, above the prejudices of rank, cheerful, full of jest, a lover of pleasure, which she preferred to a long life. Short and sweet were the words she had constantly on her lips. She was pretty, but she stood badly, and used to laugh at Marcel, the teacher of graceful deportment, who wanted to correct her awkward bearing. She kept her head bent forward and her feet turned inside when dancing, yet she was a charming dancer. Unfortunately, her face was covered with pimples, which injured her beauty very greatly. Her physicians thought they were caused by a disease of the liver, but they came from the impurity of the blood, which at last killed her, and from which she suffered throughout her life. The questions she had asked from my oracle related to affairs connected with her heart, and she wished likewise to know how she could get rid of the blotches which disfigured her. My answers were rather obscure in such matters, as I was not specially acquainted with, but they were very clear concerning her disease, and my oracle became precious and necessary to Her Highness.
End of chapter 9, part 1.